At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare dealing with pests can be a pain but relax terminix can help because when pests show up so does terminix With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. There is no question now that Clarence Thomas has broken the law. Letting him continue to degrade the Supreme Court is indefensible. We need to see him in a courtroom, not in the robes he has figuratively soiled, but in a suit at the defense table. He is a criminal. He is a political prostitute. Quoting state tax and property documents, ProPublica now reports, and the buyer confirms that in October 2014, Clarence Thomas sold his mother's home in Savannah, Georgia, to a company owned by the same Texas billionaire, Hitler Stanning, submitting to the Supreme Court distributor of corruption, Harlan Crow. The house and two nearby empty lots for $133,000, and Crow promptly made tens of thousands of dollars worth of improvements to the building, and he made a statement saying all this is true. He bought Thomas's mother's home in order to turn it into a museum, and eight and a half years later, the only exhibit in this museum is Thomas's mother, and if it is a museum, it's the Clarence Thomas Museum of Crime, because Clarence Thomas never disclosed any of this in clear violation of the statutes requiring justices and other officials to file documents relating to almost every real estate sale worth more than $1,000, and if you fail to do that, as Clarence Thomas has failed to do that, under Code Section 5 USC 13104, you can be fined and in some cases you can be sent to jail for up to a year october 2014 and clarence thomas's signature is on the paperwork of the sale and he had a supreme court administrator notarize it and he still hasn't reported the sale in savannah and he still hasn't amended his 2014 disclosure form to include the sale and as ProPublica put it quote the disclosure form thomas filed for that year also had a space to report the identity of the buyer in any private transaction such as a real estate deal 
That space is blank, unquote. As blank as Clarence Thomas's ethics or his conscience or his respect for the law. Also, this lunatic crow's explanation is wildly unbelievable. Quote, my intention is to one day create a public museum at the Thomas home dedicated to telling the story of our nation's second black Supreme Court justice, which I guess could happen if Thomas's mother weren't still living there. And if the first thing that Crow did to the place had not been to build a carport. Improvements were also made to the Thomas property, Crow explained, to preserve its long-term viability and accessibility to the public, like a carport. Every good museum needs a carport. Harlan Crow, the guy regularly doling out vacations to Clarence and Ginny Thomas worth half a million dollars, the guy who apparently does live in a museum, only it's a museum for people who want to see paintings Hitler did and the teapot Hitler made tea in and the linens Hitler used. Harlan Crow says he paid full market value for the Thomas home. And no, he didn't provide any documents to verify that. We'll just have to take his word for it. Oh, and when ProPublica broke the original Harlan Crow vacation and statues and private jet trip stories just a week ago, it knew nothing of this. So we have no idea if the corruption goes further than this. It has gone far enough. Clarence Thomas must resign from the Supreme Court, and if he refuses, 5 U.S.C. 13106 should be invoked, and the head of the Judicial Conference should refer this case to the Attorney General, and he has to prosecute Clarence Thomas, and I don't care if he's still sitting there in the robes claiming he is the Supreme Court Justice. The man is a crook. The man is a whore. The man is the definition of everything a Supreme Court Justice should not be, cannot be, must not be. And Clarence Thomas has been at the center of the culture of corruption of the Supreme Court, ranging from Neil Gorsuch's web of ties, as the New York Times put it, to the Colorado billionaire and Federalist Society funder Philip Anschutz, to the stock shares John Roberts owned or had owned in two companies as he ruled on cases involving them, to Clarence Thomas's own $1.5 million book deal, to Amy Coney Barrett's $2 million book deal, to Sonia Sotomayor's $3 million book deal. And as the money spirals up and up and the ethics spiral down and down, we are ruled over by an unelected elite with lifetime appointments and suddenly the potential for countless multi-million dollar revenue streams and nothing holding them back from greed and avarice and corruption except their own mortality and we better fix this goddamned fast and we're gonna need a lot of luck. Astonishing, wrote the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee yesterday, Dick Durbin, to the news of the Clarence Thomas, my mother, the museum story. The chief justice must investigate how such conduct could take place at the court under his watch. And if the court does not fix these clear abuses, Congress must. Yeah, Senator Durbin, you don't happen to know anybody in Congress, do you? Because it's clear the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee is just going to sit there on his hands. One speck of comic relief in this courtesy Liz Charbonneau, vice president of the Democratic Party's advocacy arm, American Bridge. Quote, uh, actually, 
Harlan Crow collects property from Supreme Court justices just to remind him of the evil they perpetrated. Oh, and what is this secret real estate transaction theme week? As the vast pit of corruption that is the Tennessee State House continues to get hoist on its own petard after the failed expulsion of Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, the website Popular Information reports that House Speaker Cameron Sexton secretly bought a $600,000 home in Nashville, Tennessee, hid the purchase behind a trust, made sure there was an illegible signature on the warranty deed. The signature turned out to be his wife's. Cameron's wife's name is Lacey. Lacey Sexton. Cameron and Lacey Sexton. This is further evidence that Speaker Sexton is serving illegally because he's got this house in Nashville, but he represents a place called Crossville, which is two hours away, and where he already sold his home, but still puts in for tens of thousands of dollars worth of per diem for travel that he is evidently not making to the district he evidently does not live in. And by the way, that spark of humanity from Tennessee's governor after the Covenant School shooting there, the strengthened red flag laws and background checks before you could buy a gun, the first bill in the Tennessee House to enact legislation for that has died in committee. Keep a Republican talking long enough and he will incriminate himself about something. Which is why the defendant's choice in the deposition before New York State Attorney General Letitia James yesterday was such a wild one. Trump was in a unique position, talk, and he could prove her fraud case, her claim that he and Fredo and Junior and Girl Junior overvalued Trump's assets by billions of dollars. Don't talk about that since it is a civil suit. His silence could be used against him. James is suing for a quarter of a billion. The amount, she says, he illegally made because of that overvaluation. She also wants the defendants and all the little defendants to be barred from conducting business in New York State. The defendant answered every question. He was there from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. And with an hour off, that's seven hours of questions. And so hats off to the attorneys who had to listen to him talk that long. My record since the year 2016 is like three minutes. There was, incidentally, a vast MAGA crowd outside the attorney general's office here in New York yesterday. Four or five people. Big banner, though. Draped over the scaffolding which blooms here in the spring just like the daffodils. The banner read, Trump or death. One of the guys who put it there emphasized to reporters, quote, not my death. As we approach that moment in which every case in every courtroom is about Trump, his half-billion-dollar lawsuit against his former lawyer, Michael Cohen, has been assigned to an Obama appointee named Judge Darren Gales. The suit is only days old, and Judge Gales has already threatened to dismiss it. He has notified Trump's lawyers that if they do not start double-spacing their submissions, he may toss their suit. And the other New York case, you remember the one they've already arrested him for, is at Stasis. But on Monday, it will take a political turn when Jim Jordan brings his Green Acres Roadshow field hearing to Manhattan to try to smear District Attorney Alvin Bragg on Trump's behalf. The Democrats plan a counter field hearing at which they will fall 
headfirst into the Republicans' trap. The editor-in-chief of Crooked Media, Brian Boitler, raised this inarguable point yesterday when Jordan and Trump's other lackeys bray, witch hunt, why aren't you focusing on the street crime here in New York City? The Democrats will answer with a flood of statistics showing that it's far more dangerous in Jim Jordan's hometown or on his wrestling team, and they'll be really happy about it, or, 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 or when in fact their only answer should be, yeah, about crime in New York, Donald Trump is a criminal. That's why he was indicted. That's what they should start with. Then they should say, that's why he was arrested. He's a criminal. Trump's a criminal. That's why he's being sued by the state. Trump's a criminal. That's why his company already lost in court. Trump's a criminal. That's why he's being sued for rape. Trump is a criminal. That's why there's a special counsel prepared to indict him for espionage, for fundraising fraud, for January 6th, for trying to overturn the election, because he is a criminal. Crime in New York, its name is Trump. That is what the Democrats should say on Monday. Don't play their game. Jiu-jitsu them. The story isn't about how many subway holdups there were last month. It's about how many times Trump tried to overthrow democracy. And speaking of that, his former director of national lack of intelligence, John Ratcliffe, testified to a Jack Smith grand jury yesterday, and the loathsome Rick Grinnell testified to whichever Jack Smith grand jury is probing the classified documents he stole, and the New York Times does hit the nail on the head here. The point of the Ratcliffe testimony is, quote, while questions linger over pending appeals and potential efforts by some of the witnesses to delay things further by invoking the Fifth Amendment, the developments suggest Mr. Smith is close to finishing the fact-finding phase of his work and is moving closer to a decision about seeking charges against Mr. Trump and others, unquote. Which is virtually exactly what we heard yesterday about Jack Smith, having heard from virtually everybody he could have heard from, about the classified docs. And that reminds me that there is that supposed final focus of Jack Smith's probe on the Mar-a-Lago documents. The map Trump supposedly stole and showed off to somebody on a plane and somebody else writing a book and somebody else making a donation. And I knew I'd heard the story somewhere before. And sure enough, there it is. Kind of sum of all fears conflation. From a Tucker Carlson interview from March 21st, 2022, and Carlson, who also last night defended the racist anti-Semite kid who leaked all the military documents to impress his gamer buddies. Carlson called him a whistleblower. Carlson is not loyal to this country. In March 2022, Carlson's guest said he was in the White House with Trump one day in 2017 when Trump started asking him his thoughts on ISIS and North Korea, and then, quoting Carlson's guest, we're looking at maps and bleep. I'm like, you know, am I supposed to be in on this bleep? The Carlson guest, to whom Trump in 2017 showed the presumably classified maps? Kid Rock. Check, please. <sighs> Lastly, since the classified kleptomania story broke, I have been saying it will prove far worse than our worst guesses. And so as funny as this next tale might sound, by God, I actually find myself wondering if this is not a wacky coincidence. Victor Boot, the arms dealer 
President Biden traded to the Kremlin in exchange for the basketball star Putin had taken prisoner, Brittany Griner. Victor Boot went on Russian TV yesterday and said he had sent Trump a telegram warning Trump that his life is in danger in New York and he should flee to Russia and ask for political asylum and from there lead what Boot says is the battle against the globalists. And so in conclusion, I have only two observations. First, yes, this is exactly what I've been saying since 2017 to Trump. Defect, flee, run, waddle, do it now. And the second observation is, wait, you can still send a telegram? Still ahead on this edition of Countdown, they were sure the secrets leak owed to the woke military. Then it turned out the culprit was a pasty white guy who liked to videotape himself shouting anti-minority slurs and then shooting guns. Looking at you, Senator Tommy Tuberville. And they were sure the murderer of a tech kingpin owed to the liberal destruction of the city of San Francisco. Then it turned out that culprit was another tech kingpin. Looking at you, Elon Muskrat. And he is one of the most disreputable people I have ever met in television. And guess what? He's the new commissioner of the Big Ten Conference. That's next. This is Countdown. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you run for office or take on the country's biggest problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home, pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know intricate political strategy, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. 
Changing up the format today because worst is way better than the sports segment, though the sports world has finally exercised one of its worst people, football owner Dan Snyder, while readmitting one of its other worst people, former TV executive Tony Petiti. It's a worst person's festival. First time for the daily roundup, the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's official worst persons in the world. The bronze governor, Rhonda Santis of Florida, tweeting a video of himself yesterday at Hillsdale College in Michigan, and then stopping off in Ohio and going on this book tour that isn't a book tour for a presidential campaign that isn't a presidential campaign. And there's this book and nobody's bought the book. All this while one of his better cities, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, is under freaking water after flooding. Hey, Rhonda. How about you go back and do your effing job? By the way, that video he tweeted starts with Rhonda in an arms-on-the-shoulders embrace of college girls. Not great, Ron. Not great. The runners-up, everybody from Senator Tommy Tuberville. I never know if I'm pronouncing it right. Is it Tommy Tuberville or Tubby Tomerville? Anyway, from the senator to Thomas Spohr of the Heritage Foundation, they've all been whining and moaning about the woke military. And then who do the authorities arrest outside Providence, Rhode Island for the biggest leak of American military secrets in a decade? A 21-year-old straight, white, pasty gamer who makes videos of himself shooting guns and shouting anti-Semitic and racist crap. Yeah, it's the woke military. Frickin' Tubby Tomerville can't even spell woke. But our winners, same kind of theme, Tucker Carlson and Elon Musk. When big tech mogul Bob Lee, the founder of Cash App, was murdered in a seedy section of San Francisco, Musk and Carlson and the rest of the right-wing blamosphere immediately concluded that this was just another moment in the rise and fall of that heathen city, San Francisco. Many people I know, Musk tweeted, have been severely assaulted. Oh, bullcrap, you don't know anybody. If you knew anybody, you wouldn't be sleeping in your library. Quoting again, Violent crime in SF is horrific, and even if attackers are caught, they're often released immediately. Is the city taking stronger action to incarcerate repeat offenders? Then he tagged the new DA of San Francisco. Then yesterday, police arrested the only suspect in the Lee murder, Nima Momeni, another tech entrepreneur. Momeni and Lee knew each other, and police contend that after a dispute in a car, Lee got out and Momeni stabbed him to death. And of course, Carlson and Musk and all the other frauds said nothing. Tucker, it's a random attack. Carlson and Elon, is the city taking stronger action to address the risk of tech bros? Musk, today's worst persons in the world! This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, NFL exorcism, the most hated of owners in the game out of many candidates. Dan Snyder has agreed to sell the Washington Commanders for $6 billion to Josh Harris, 
who already owns much of basketball's Philadelphia 76ers and hockey's New Jersey Devils. The $6 billion will allow Snyder to focus on his hobbies, humiliating employees, and making special videotapes of cheerleaders. Nancy Faust. So now it's 13 and 0. The Tampa Bay Rays beat Boston 9-3 yesterday to become only the third team since 1884 to win its first 13 games of the season. 1982 Braves, 1987 Brewers, 2023 Rays. They have played 117 innings this year. They have trailed during 6 of them. Tampa Bay goes for the modern record in Toronto now, the all-time record, the 1884 St. Louis Maroons, getting more publicity than they have gotten since 1884, 20-0 and to start that season. And once upon a time, the Big Ten was probably the preeminent conference in college sports. Recently, it's had a few rocky years, and it has, of course, an existential problem, the Big Ten consists of 14 different schools. Next year, it will add USC and UCLA. That'll make 16. Now, to go with this numerical oddity, it has one of the most disreputable people I have ever known as its new commissioner. It has named Tony Petiti to run the conference. On November 26, 2012, my agent followed the instructions of the then president of the TV publicity channel owned by Major League Baseball, MLB Network, and called that president to finalize a deal by which I would join the channel to do a daily show, probably at 5.30 at night. It was going to be strange. MLB Network and its sister hockey channel, NHL Network, originate in the same studios in Secaucus, New Jersey, which MSNBC used every day from the day I started there in October 1997 through the day in October 2007 when NBC had all of us moved to New York City. I had been asked to do something for MLB Network in 2008 and 2009 before it ever got on the air. The request came from the then commissioner of baseball directly, Bud Selig. Bud asked me also to write for baseball's website, MLB.com. We got that done, but the TV show was impossible until I became a TV free agent in the fall of 2012. And I was invited to do a couple of guest appearances, and they went well except for this really crazy deja vu thing that hit me when I went into the building and found that while baseball had spent $60 million to upgrade all the technical stuff there and the studio designs and such, they had not touched anything else from the MSNBC days. I mean, the carpet tiles were the same. The ping pong table in the break room was the same. The signs on the back of the bathroom door telling you who to call if the John overflowed were the same. It was like having a dream where you're back in your childhood home and everything is exactly the way it was, except, you know, there's this nuclear reactor in the middle of your den and you keep saying, now, where did that come from? Anyway, this gets us back to the guy now put in charge of the Big Ten. The guest appearances on MLB Network had been personally arranged by the president of that network, Tony Petiti, the new commissioner of the Big Ten. Petiti asked if I would fill in for two days on their then new morning show, the week of Thanksgiving. I certainly knew how to get to the building. I did the shows with Brian Kenny and Ken Rosenthal and Bob Costas's son, Keith, and Alana Rizzo, and we had a great time. Petiti attended the meetings we had before and after each show, and I mean full staff meetings. Fifteen or so people just standing around a bunch of cubicles in front of all of them. 
Fatidi began to ask me if I thought my new show would be doing better at 5 o'clock or at 5.30, and if I agreed with him that I should only work during the baseball season and spring training and the playoffs and the winter meetings and stay fresh by taking the rest of the year off. And he asked me if there were people on the staff of that morning show who I would like to work with. I mean, this is in front of the staff of the morning show. Fatidi warned me in front of them that he couldn't pay me the kind of salary I was used to. And I said that happily the kind of salary I was used to meant I didn't need the kind of salary I was used to. He then told me to remind my agent to call him the Monday after Thanksgiving. He wished me a happy holiday and everybody left. A couple of the producers asked if I was recommending them to be on my new show. Probably because it wasn't in the morning. So on the Monday afternoon after Thanksgiving, my agent calls me and says he's just gotten off the phone with this Tony Petiti, and it was the strangest conversation he had had since he had become an agent. No, let me rephrase that, he said. It wasn't a conversation. It was an attempted conversation. I kept asking him what he told me to ask him, and then he'd say nothing. Initially, I did not understand what my agent meant. What do you mean he said nothing? My agent said he meant literally that. I said, so, Tony, what's your offer to Keith? And then there was just silence, and I thought the phone call had dropped. So I said, Tony, are you there? And he said, yeah, sure am. So again, I asked him, what's his offer? And again, literally, it's silence. I can hear him breathing. I tried like 10 different ways. Are we talking about Keith now, Tony? Silence. Is there a reason you're being silent about Keith, Tony? Silence. If I changed the subject, my agent said, if I talked about somebody else or something else, he was his normal self. When I mentioned your name, he went silent. The next day, my agent called me back. Petiti just did this again with me on the phone. He wouldn't speak, literally would not say any words in any language. It took me a long time to find out what had happened. The next baseball season, after I'd gone back to work at ESPN, I'm at a game. There's one of the MLB network officials who I had met on my two days working there before Thanksgiving 2012, and this person comes up and apologizes. Oh, we all heard what happened, they said. It's so embarrassing. Petiti's such a coward. The Yankees got to him. And another club. I never found out which one. There was some kind of conference call the Monday after Thanksgiving to tell the teams about your new show, and whoever was on the call for the Yankees went nuts. If you put him on MLB Network, we will disable your cameras at Yankee Stadium, and we will never let any of you inside the building again. Now, I knew why the Yankees would have done that. I was a season ticket holder, my folks before me, before I had a checkbook, for 42 years. For 10 of those years, I was one of the two announcers who did a kind of play-by-play over the public address system at Yankee Stadium on Old Timers Day. And one day in 2011, I had tweeted this photo of a Yankee employee in the stands giving some kind of signals to Alex Rodriguez, who was then a Yankee player, in the on-deck circle. I mean, the tweets are still up. The guy was clearly telling A-Rod what the last pitch had been. Fastball, curveball, slider, whatever. It wasn't cheating it happened after the play not before the play it was helping a supposed superstar who could not figure him out for himself from his position on the field what kind of pitch the last pitch had been i tweeted the photo major league baseball called the yankees and told them cut it out the yankees and a-rod looked dumb in the papers and the yankees management said they were not mad at me and then three months later days before this old timers day they leaked to the papers that i had been fired as old-timers day play-by-play man because I had tweeted the photo. So my response to that was to, you know, not renew my season tickets. 
And my tickets were right behind home plate, and they cost $400,000 a year, and relax. I gave like 70% of them to make a wish. But the Yankees, being the Yankees, were furious that after they did that to me, I would still refuse to give them $400,000 a year. So they told MLB Network, if MLB Network gave me a show, they would unplug MLB Network cameras. Actually, they did more than that. I asked my friend, the MLB Network official, the real puzzler of the saga, why the MLB Network president, Tony Petiti, literally would not say anything. Even just deals off, sorry, to my agent on the phone. Why they went through this dance in which he literally went silent every time my agent brought up my name. Oh, the official said. The Yankees were very specific about that. If you say anything to him or his people, anything, we will get you fired. So, Tony Petiti took that literally. He said, if you called or your agent called to just give you the silent treatment, which is what he was going to do. These are adults, mind you. Adults who often say that the on-air talent are the prima donnas in broadcasting. Well, Tony Petiti got his. He was promoted not long after to chief operating officer of Major League Baseball. And then a couple of years later, the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred, squeezed him out. He drifted to an e-sports company and then a football consulting job with something called the 33rd Team. And now he's the new commissioner of the Big Ten. The Big Ten, which has 16 members. And if they're lucky, when Tony Petiti is done with them, they'll still have... Five or six of them left. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you run for office or take on the country's biggest problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home, pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know intricate political strategy, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. 
Still ahead on Countdown, Fridays with Thurber and the story of intrigue and spies and trains worthy of murder on the Orient Express, except it's all happening only inside James Thurber's own head. The Lady on 142, next. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need you can help. Every dog has its day. To Martinez, California. And Cookie. And Cookie is about to go on death row there. She was found on the street. She was chipped. They called her human, and her human never called back. Cookie's also had tumors and some paralysis, but she's responding well to simple treatment. Antibiotics are clearing these things up. She's gentle, she's sweet, they all love her there, but she is a gray pity. A tiny one, looks to be about 40 pounds maybe, but it's so hard to overcome the assumptions about these dogs that they wind up first on death row. Cookie needs our pledges to help a rescue pull her out and save her. Look for Cookie in my Twitter feeds. I thank you, and Cookie thanks you. number one story on the countdown and it is fridays with thurber and thus the number one story on the countdown is fridays with james thurber many of the great writers great stories the short stories the fables have great meaning or symbolism and some of them are just great fun let me give you one of the latter from the thurber carnival it will explain itself fairly quickly the lady on 142 by james thurber The train was 20 minutes late, we found out, when we bought our tickets, so we sat down on a bench in the little waiting room of the Cornwall Bridge Station. It was too hot outside in the sun. This midsummer Saturday had got off to a sulky start, and now, at three in the afternoon, it sat sticky and restive in our laps. There were several others besides Sylvia and myself waiting for the train to get in from Pittsfield, an older woman who fanned herself with a daily news, a young lady in her 20s reading a book, a slender, tanned man sucking dreamily on the stem of an unlighted pipe. In the center of the room, leaning against a high iron radiator, a small girl stared at each of us in turn, her mouth open, as if she had never seen people before. The place had the familiar pleasant smell of railroad stations in the country, of something compounded of wood and leather and smoke. In the cramped space behind the ticket window, a telegraph instrument clicked intermittently, and once or twice a phone rang and the station master answered it briefly. I couldn't hear what he said. I was glad on such a day that we were going only as far as Gaylordsville, the third stop down the line, 22 minutes away. The station master had told us that our tickets were the first tickets to Gaylordsville he'd ever sold. I was idly pondering this small distinction when a train whistle blew in the distance. We all got to our feet, but the station master came out of his cubbyhole and told us it was not our train, but the 1245 from New York northbound. Presently, the train thundered in like a hurricane and sighed ponderously to a stop. The station master went out into the platform and came back after a minute or two. The train got heavily underway again for Canaan. I was opening a pack of cigarettes when I heard the station master talking on the phone again. This time, 
His words came out clearly. He kept repeating one sentence. He was saying, Conductor Reagan on 142 has the lady the office was talking about. The person on the other end of the line did not appear to get the meaning of the sentence. The station master repeated it and hung up. For some reason, I figured that he did not understand it either. Sylvia's eyes had the lost, reflective look they wear when she's trying to remember in what box she packed the Christmas tree ornaments. The expressions on the faces of the older woman, the young lady, and the man with the pipe had not changed. The little staring girl had gone away. Our train was not due for another five minutes, and I sat back and began trying to reconstruct the lady on 142, the lady conductor Reagan had, the lady the office was asking about. I moved nearer to Sylvia and whispered, See if the trains are numbered in your timetable. She got the timetable out of her handbag and looked at it. 142, she said, is the 1245 from New York. This was the train that had gone by a few minutes before. The woman was taken sick, said Sylvia. They're probably arranging to have a doctor or her family meet her. The older woman looked around at her briefly. The young woman, who had been chewing gum, stopped chewing. The man with the pipe seemed oblivious. I lighted a cigarette and sat thinking. The woman on 142, I said to Sylvia, flatly, might be almost anything, but she is definitely not sick. The only person who did not stare at me was the man with the pipe. Sylvia gave me her temperature-taking look, a cross between anxiety and vexation. Just then, our train whistled and we all stood up. I picked up our two bags, and Sylvia took the sack of string beans we had picked up for the Connells. When the train came clanking in, I said in Sylvia's ear, He'll sit near us. You watch. Who? Who will? She said. The stranger, I told her. The man with the pipe. Sylvia laughed. He's not a stranger, she said. He works for the breeds. I was certainly that he did not work for the breeds. Women like to place people. Every stranger reminds them of somebody. The man with the pipe was sitting three seats in front of us across the aisle when we got settled. I indicated him with a nod of my head. Sylvia took a book out of the top of her overnight bag and opened it. What's the matter with you? She demanded. I looked around before replying. A sleepy man and woman sat across from us. Two middle-aged women in the seat in front of us were discussing the severe, griping pain one of them had experienced as a result of inflamed diverticulitis. A slim, dark-eyed young woman sat in the seat behind us. She was alone. The trouble with women, I began, is that they explain everything by illness. I have a theory that we could be celebrating the 12th of May or even the 16th of April as Independence Day if Mrs. Jefferson hadn't got the idea her husband had a fever and put him to bed. Sylvia found her place in the book. We've been all through that before, she said. Why couldn't the woman on 142 be sick? That was easy. I told her. Conductor Reagan, I said, got off the train at Cornwall Bridge and spoke to the station master. I've got the woman the office was asking about, he said. Sylvia cut in. 
He said lady. I gave the little laugh that annoys her. All conductors say lady, I explained. Now, if a woman had got sick on the train, Reagan would have said, a woman got sick on my train, tell the office. What must have happened is that Reagan found somewhere between Kent and Cornwall Bridge a woman the office had been looking for. Sylvia did not close her book, but she looked up. Maybe she got sick before she got on the train and the office was worried, said Sylvia. She was not giving the problem close attention. If the office knew she got on the train, I said patiently, they wouldn't have asked Reagan to let them know if he found her. They would have told him about her when she got on. Sylvia resumed her reading. Let's stay out of it, she said. It isn't any of our business. I hunted for my chicklets, but couldn't find them. It might be everybody's business, I said. Every patriot's. I know, I know, said Sylvia. You think she's a spy. Well, I think she's sick. I ignored that. Every conductor on the line has been asked to look out for her. I said, Reagan found her. She won't be met by her family. She'll be met by the FBI. Or the OPA, said Sylvia. Alfred Hitchcock things don't happen on the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad. I saw the conductor coming from the other end of the couch. I'm going to tell the conductor, I said, that Reagan on 142 has got the woman. No, you're not, said Sylvia. You're not going to get us in mixed up in this. He probably knows anyway. The conductor, short, stocky, silver-haired, and silent, took up our tickets. He looked like a kindly ickies. Sylvia, who had stiffened, relaxed when I let him go by without a word about the woman on 142. He looks exactly as if he knew where the Maltese falcon is hidden, doesn't he? said Sylvia with the laugh that annoys me. Nevertheless, I pointed out, you said a little while ago that he probably knows about the woman on 142. If she's just sick, why should they tell the conductor on this train? I'll rest more easily when I know that they've actually got her. Sylvia kept reading as if she hadn't heard me. I leaned my head against the back of the seat and closed my eyes. The train was slowing down noisily and a brakeman was yelling, Kent! Kent! When I felt a small, cold pressure against my shoulder. Oh! The voice of the woman in the seat behind me said, I've dropped my copy of Coronet under your seat. She leaned closer and her voice became low and hard. Get off here, mister, she said. We're going to Gaylordsville, I said. You and your wife are getting off here, mister, she said. I reached for the suitcases on the rack. What do you want, for heaven's sake, asked Sylvia. We're uh, getting off here, I told her. Are you really crazy, she demanded. This is only Kent. Come on, sister, said the woman's voice. You take the overnight bag and the beans. You take the big bag, mister. Sylvia was furious. I knew you'd get us into this, she said to me, shouting about spies at the top of your voice. That made me angry. You're the one who mentioned spies, I told her. I didn't. You kept talking about it and talking about it, said Sylvia. Come on, get off, the two of you, 
said the cold, hard voice. We got off. As I helped Sylvia down the steps, I said, We know too much. Oh, shut up, she said. We didn't have far to go. A big black limousine waited a few steps away. Behind the wheel sat a heavy-set foreigner with cruel lips and small eyes. He scowled when he saw us. The boss don't want nobody up there, he said. It's all right, Carl, said the woman. Get in, she told us. We climbed into the back seat. She sat between us with the gun in her hand. It was a handsome, jeweled derringer. Alice will be waiting for us at Gaylordsville, said Sylvia, in all this heat. The house was a long, low, rambling building reached at the end of a poplar-lined drive. Never mind the bags, said the woman. Sylvia took the string beans and her book, and we got out. Two huge mastiffs came bounding off the terrace, snarling. Down, Mata, said the woman. Down, Pedro. They slunk away, still snarling. Sylvia and I sat side by side on a sofa in a large, handsomely appointed living room. Across from us, in a chair, lounged a tall man with heavily lidded black eyes and long, sensitive fingers. Against the door through which we had entered the room leaned a thin, undersized young man with his hands in the pockets of his coat and a cigarette hanging from his lower lip. He had a drawn, sallow face and his small, half-closed eyes stared at us incuriously. In a corner of the room, a squat, swarthy man twiddled with the dials of a radio. The woman paced up and down, smoking a cigarette in a long holder. "'Well, Gale,' said the lounging man in a soft voice, "'to what do we owe this unexpected visit?' Gale kept pacing. "'They got Sandra,' she said finally. The lounging man did not change expression. "'Who got Sandra, Gale?' he asked softly. "'Reagan, on one four two, said Gale. The squat, swarthy man jumped to his feet. "'All the time Egypt say, kill this Reagan!' he shouted. All the time Egypt say, bump off this Reagan. The lounging man did not look at him. Sit down, Egypt, he said quietly. The swarthy man sat down. Gale went on talking. The punk here shot off his mouth, he said. He was wise. I looked at the man leaning against the door. She means you, said Sylvia, who laughed. The dame was dumb, Gail went on. She thought the lady on the train was sick. Now I laughed. She means you, I said to Sylvia. The punk was blowing his top all over the train, said Gail. I had to bring him along. Sylvia, who had the beans on her lap, began breaking and stringing them. Well, my dear lady, said the lounging man, a most homely little touch. Was a touch? demanded Egypt. Touch, I told him. Gail sat down in a chair. Who's going to rub him out? she asked. Freddy, said the lounging man. Egypt was on his feet again. Nah, nah, he shouted. Not the punk. The punk bump off the last six, seven people. The lounging man looked at him. Egypt paled and sat down. I thought you were the punk, said Sylvia. I looked at her coldly. 
I know where I have seen you before, I said to the lounging man. It was at Zagreb in 1927. Tilden took you in straight sets. Six love, six love, six love. The man's eyes glittered. I think I bump off this man myself, he said. Freddy walked over and handed the lounging man an automatic. At this moment, the door Freddy had been leaning against burst open, and in rushed the man with the pipe, shouting, Gale! 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 Gaylordsville! Gaylordsville! bawled the brakeman. Sylvia was shaking me by the arm. Quit moaning, she said. Everybody's looking at you. I rubbed my forehead with a handkerchief. Hurry up, she said, Sylvia said. They don't stop here long. I pulled the bags down and, and we got off. Have you got the beans? I asked Sylvia. Alice Connell was waiting for us. On the way to their home in the car, Sylvia began to tell Alice about the woman on 142. I didn't say anything. He thought she was a spy, said Sylvia. They both laughed. She probably got sick on the train, said Alice. They were probably arranging for a doctor to meet her at the station. That's just what I told him, said Sylvia. I lighted a cigarette. The lady on 142, I said firmly, was definitely not sick. Oh, Lord, said Sylvia. Here we go again. The Lady on 142 by James Thurber. First time I ever read that one, I was on a train outside Philadelphia. It was perfect. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Here are the credits. Most of the music arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, the Countdown Musical Directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN, Inc. Musical comments from Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever, and our announcer today was Larry David. Everything else, pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 829th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Don't forget, keep arresting him while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is Monday. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER.
Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. 